Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast for Salem Heights Church. We meet weekly at 9 and 11 a.m. For more information, visit SalemHeightsChurch.org. Well, good morning, Salem Heights. It is uh, the end of a week where you're super glad to live in the Willamette Valley, aren't you? A little bit of sunshine. Um, everybody's had their first barbecue, I'm sure, of the season, and uh, been able to have uh, all the family around. I hope that it's been a good week for you. Uh, I'm not saying it's going to end with this morning's message, but I do uh, want you to understand uh, something right from the top. Uh, this message this morning comes with a little bit of a trigger warning, all right? We're going to be talking about adultery, and uh, we wouldn't be a good church, by the way, if we skipped over tough passages in Scripture, amen? And so uh, this is something that still, I, I don't know if you're aware of this, but it still plagues our society, and it is an, an active part of not just our world's culture, but it has found its way into the church. So um, I, I've had quite a few folks uh, in this marriage series uh, start a conversation with me along this line. I saw what you were going to talk about today, and I just said, I'll come back next week. All right? Now, they've said that when I speak on a regular basis. It doesn't offend me. <laughs> I want you to hear that. Uh, but I do, I do want you to hear this. I, I, it doesn't matter... Um, if you're single or married. It doesn't matter if your marriage is great or struggling. It doesn't matter. Uh, You put in all of the lists of probable causes why this might not be for you uh, or why you might not be able to bear it this morning. This is what I want you to hear. These stories, narrative, uh, are written in Scripture for us. The New Testament says these things were written for us so that we might not sin as they sin or crave sin as they sin, so that we might not experience the consequences of that sin. And there are things for every single person in this story of David and Bathsheba. There is a book that we've sometimes used in our counseling program called Torn Asunder, Uh, recovering from an extramarital affair. And in the opening lines of it, it says this, the wildfire of adultery has unfortunately continued to spread, fanned by the media, fed by the debris of broken families, sparked by a culture where values have disappeared. In an environment where men and women spend more time than ever together in career travel, volunteer efforts, and shared ministry, Throw in the attitudinal shift in women towards extramarital sex, the exploding practice of cohabitation without commitment, the huge secrets of the internet. And it is no wonder that over half of all marriages experience infidelity. Um, th- there is a, an old joke that, that goes like this, a perfect man, a perfect woman, and Santa Claus and a cat got into an ad- accident. Which one lived? The cat, because the other three don't exist. 
It's always the cat. I had to put the cat in there. Uh, it was actually a different joke. <laughs> but cats, for some reason, survive. There is no such thing, folks, as the perfect man. Amen goes there. I'll be careful with this one. There is no such thing as the perfect woman. <laughs> but what we do have is a craving when we get married on that day to say, I want to be fulfilled in this relationship. And we come in with all these monstrous expectations and the sin, Scripture says, that so easily besets us. And we enter into marriage and then we enter into trials and we wonder, where did we find ourselves? Some in this room have already experienced broken homes. Some have already experienced broken marriages. Some in this room right now are in the midst of experiencing brokenness, and you're afraid. You're afraid it might end. Very few people have properly processed. We are not by nature self-reflective. Even those who profess that they're self-reflective quite often are reflective for other people. We don't like looking in. We don't like looking at what Scripture says to us. My strong encouragement to you this morning is let's read this story, see what it says for us, but apply this way. Before you point at somebody else or some other situation, look at the three fingers pointing back at you. Investigate. Lord, what would you have me do to avoid this scenario? Uh, it's amazing, even though our culture is awash with adultery, they do not look highly on adultery. A writer, Lee Michaels, the author of over 100 Harlequin romances, okay, says this, heroes and heroines do not commit adultery. Harlequin romance writer, famous for writing all kinds of bodry details about terrifying things, all right, that shouldn't be reading those books. Even she says, hero, heroes and heroines don't commit adultery. Nonetheless, we have in Scripture a hero and a heroine, somebody found in the lineage of Christ who committed adultery in this chapter. How did this happen? Let's read. Now, because of the length of this, and I want you to uh, listen to the entire thing, I had a few of you say, hey, if there's short passages, it's easy for me to stand, but it's a little tough to concentrate for an extended passage. I want you still with reverence in your heart to listen to this passage, but we're going to sit and read this together, and then we're going to unpack it. 2 Samuel chapter 11, starting with verse 1. It says, in the spring, when kings march out to war, David sent Joab with his officers and all of Israel. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and strolled around on the roof of the palace, and from the roof he saw a woman bathing, a beautiful woman. So David sent someone to inquire about her, and he said, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and wife of Uriah the Hethite? David sent messengers to her, and when she came to him, he slept with her. Now she had just been purifying herself from her uncleanness. And afterwards she returned home, and the woman conceived and sent word and informed David, I am pregnant. David sent orders to Joab, send me Uriah the Hethite. So Joab sent Uriah to David, and when Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab and the troops were doing and how the war was going. 
And he said to Uriah, go down to your house, wash your feet. Uh, in your notes in your own Bible, you can put euphemism there, okay? Go wash your own feet, be comforted. So Uriah left the palace and a gift from the king followed him, but Uriah slept at the door of the palace with all of his master's servants. He did not go down to his house. And when it was reported to David, Uriah didn't go home. David questioned Uriah, have you just come from a journey? Why didn't you go home? And Uriah answered David, the ark of Israel and Judah are dwelling in tents and my master Joab and his soldiers are camping in an open field. How could I enter my house and eat and drink and sleep with my wife? As surely as you live and by your life, I will not do this. Stay here today also, David said to Uriah, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah stayed in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited Uriah to eat and drink with him. And David got him drunk. And he went out in the evening to lie down on his cot with his master's servants, but he did not go home. The next morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. It's in his hand. In the letter he wrote, put Uriah at the front of the fiercest fighting, then withdraw from him so that he is struck down and he dies. When Joab was besieging the city, he put Uriah in the place where he knew the best enemy soldiers were. And the men of the city came out, they attacked Joab, and some of the men from David's soldiers fell in battle, and Uriah the Hethite also died. Joab sent someone to report to David all the details of the battle, and he commanded the messenger, when you have finished telling the king all the details of the battle, if the king, king's anger gets stirred up and he asks you, why did you go so close to the city to fight? Didn't you realize that they would shoot from the top of the wall? At Thebes, who struck Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Didn't a woman drop a millstone on him from the top of the wall so that he died? Why'd you get so close to the wall? And you say, your servant Uriah the Hethite is dead also. And the messenger left. When he arrived, he reported to David all that Joab had done. Sent him to tell. And the messenger reported to David, the men gained the advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we counterattacked right up to the entrance of the city gate. However, the archers shot down your servants from the top of the wall, and some of the king's servants died. Your servant Uriah the Hethite is also dead. And David told the messenger, say this to Joab, don't let this matter upset you. The sword devours all alike. Intensify your fight against the city, demolish it. Encourage him. And when Uriah's wife heard that her husband Uriah had died, she mourned for him. And the time of mourning ended, David had her brought to his house. And she became his wife and bore him a son. However, the Lord considered what David had done to be evil. Do you believe this story was written for us to consider? It was. Let's pray and we'll unpack it. Father, we ask that you would guide our thinking. And right now that you would comfort. There are some, uh, Father, in here who have been wounded by adultery. There are others who in their heart right now are backpedaling from this story, hoping not to be discovered. But every single one of us, need to hear these truths. We need to see the storyline. We need to avoid these consequences, not by hiding sin, but by exposing that and coming clean before you. Father, help us to treasure purity. Help us to live lives so fully focused on you that this is not our story, 
But help us to be aware of not only this story, its consequences, but the beautiful way that you restore people as only you can do. Father, our hope is in you. And I pray that those that are here that are struggling would recognize that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want us to focus just on a couple of things, and we're going to start with the main players. Notice here at the very beginning, David. And I want you to just, as you consider David, wrap your mind around this thought. Temptation often follows a transition. Temptation often follows a transition. Uh, it says, in the spring, when kings march out to war, okay, this is uh, just a uh, statement that's made, you know, it's a, a plot thickener. You, if you are a king at this time, know your place, where you're supposed to be. But David is 50 plus at this time, all right? He's midlife. He's also in the wake of some high spiritual moments. If you just go back a couple chapters, and you don't have to go there and read these, but at the end of chapter 8, verse 15, it gives you the entire view. This entire nation is looking at David And it says, so David reigned over Israel and administered justice and righteousness to all of his people. Every single person saw David as a righteous king and a gift to them as a community. In the very next chapter, in chapter 9, he goes out and as a righteous man, not wanting anybody who was still alive out of Saul's family to be afraid of him. He says, is there anybody alive that I might be able to show favor to Jonathan who was my best friend? And somebody says, there's a man named Mephibosheth. And so he brings this man to his table and says, all the rest of your days, you'll be able to eat at my table. I'm going to take care of you. He shows kindness and grace beyond what a king was expected to bring. And then in chapter 10, there's a war with Ammonites and Arameans. David is pressed hard, and he ends up in the end of it having this amazing victory, and his Kingdom is secure, and it's evident that he still has the goods, even as he's managing a kingdom, to win these fierce battles. So it says, in the springtime, when kings march out to war, David is at home. He is not in the battle with his men. Now, there's a lot of reasons that have been lifted up why he might not be in the battle, but I want you to just notice two things. First of all, it's springtime, and men are fighting, okay? Just put that down as happens every year still to this day, okay? (laughs) Springtime, everybody says we got to get the men out of the house. They're just banging their chest and irritable, and they're wanting to prove themselves. So where do they go? They go out to war. David is not in the battle with the men. It could be that the kingdom was demanding a lot of uh, things of him. It could be uh, a lot of reasons. But Scripture writes it this way because David was not in the place he was supposed to be. He was relaxing and stepping away from that place to a place of little accountability. He's relaxing. He's taking it easy. He's withdrawn. I just want you to notice a couple of things uh, because of the setting. First, David's age isn't mentioned, but everybody would have known it was over 50. I want you to understand that age does not diminish the battle or the consequences. We've had a talk, even in our senior saints, All right, we had a talk about adultery. We had a talk about sexual sin. I asked the entire group, all right, does this battle ever end? There wasn't any hesitation. There was a collective no, all right? There's no time where this battle 
ends. Age doesn't diminish the battle or its consequences. There is a uh, article that I read just a short while ago, The Signs of Midlife Crisis. I've been studying just about transitions in people's lives, but the signs of midlife crisis are very similar to the signs that you might be in a transition as an individual uh, from one stage of life to another. The article says at the very beginning, midlife crisis is not a certifiable diagnosis or condition. It's challenging to study, but there are consistencies at midlife that people have to face. The first one is a feeling of nostalgia where you keep looking back to your greatest hits or your greatest days or the moments that where you were great. Do you keep referencing who you used to be rather than who you are and where God is taking you? You might be heading into midlife. Emptiness or boredom. Running on a fixed schedule, living in a routine for seems like 20 or 30 years. You end up losing your motivation. You wonder, what am I going to do to face this day? Is this really all that there is? Emptiness and boredom. Discontented with life. You look at your present life and you compare it with your friends. Uh, The term that you might use is FOMO, fear of missing out. Look at all their Instagram pictures. Look at how amazing their kids are. Their grandkids are always smiling in all the pictures. What about mine? Drastic change in attitude. person in midlife might have frequent mood swings, heightened anxiety, anger, unreasonable outbursts. They might start making hasty decisions. And one of the marks of a midlife crisis is infidelity in marriage, thinking that somebody else is going to solve your problems, and it never does. David has all the classic signs. He's going through some transitions in the things around him, and he begins to look down from his rooftop, and he sees something in his mind that he says, this is going to distract me, this is going to help me, this may fix me. None of those are true. But I also want you to see this before we move off of David. David's many wives did not satisfy his longings. David had many wives. He had people that were available to him. I want you to notice a couple of things about this scenario. There is no relationship with these women. He's not on the roof with somebody else. He's not having a romantic dinner with one of his wives. He is alone. He's not cultivated the relationship with his wife. He is alone. There is nobody who can speak into his life. He's alone. I want you to hear this very clearly. It is not his wife's fault. Okay? David is not about to sin because his wives haven't met his need. David hasn't done anything to cultivate those relationships. Any indication of that? There's no indication other than that in Scripture. The question that would be good for us in the future is, what kind of relationship would have gotten in the way of this episode? David. But there's a second player that we have here, and that's Bathsheba. Sometimes because of... uh, fear of cultural responses. Uh, If you look up, was Bathsheba at fault? You're going to get, especially after hashtag Me Too, an incredible violent series of articles that you can read on there's no way it is her fault. Remember, Scripture writes things so that you can understand it. Within just a couple of chapters, we read a story about uh, another actual rape, and Scripture highlights that as rape. In this scenario, yes, the power dynamics are absolutely in David's favor. But I want you to consider a couple of things 
as we look at two people who fail. And this one under the idea that dabbling with desire can be dangerous. Is it possible that some other person will be strong for me? Is it possible that some other person will understand me and cause me to flower like I'm supposed to or Scripture says that I'm supposed to? Is somebody else going to understand my needs? Here is Bathsheba, and she didn't just discover David on that night. In fact, the indication of Scripture, uh, as we just follow some of the breadcrumbs, is she probably knew David all of her life. First Samuel uh, chapter 30, we see this amazing moment where Amalekites have come and attacked David's camp and all of his mighty men that have gathered to him out there. Our best understanding is that there were three that were with him already when he was in the wilderness when this attack happens. In 1 Samuel 30, the Amalekites come and they take the women and children and all of these goods. They plunder David's camp while he is away fighting. He comes back and his men are despondent. And among them would have been Uriah and Eliam and Ahithophel. Three men that become significant in the Bathsheba story. Eliam, Bathsheba's dad. Uriah, Bathsheba's husband. Ahithophel, David's key advisor that when he spoke, it was like God's word to David. That's what scripture says. These three men are with him. And David says, let's go and capture them back. And they go and they win the day. And who is probably brought back from a terrible future? Who is saved in that moment by David and his mighty men riding to victory? Little Bathsheba. Among those people who would eventually marry Uriah, who is in this story. When David is looking down from the roof and says, who is this girl? It's written almost proverbially. Man, who is that? And the guy says, hey, isn't that Bathsheba? I mean, you know that's Uriah's house. You know that this is one of your mighty men. This is one of your closest friends, one of the guys that when you're pinched in battle, throws his body in front of the arrows for you. David knew this man. He knew this woman. And she knew him. She probably admired him from a distance. She's brash and beautiful. Why brash? She's up on the roof instead of taking a bath in the privacy of her own home. The indication of Scripture is she's lonely. Where is her husband? Off at war. Will he come home? No, he has too much integrity. He won't come home. He won't violate his integrity, but he doesn't, to any indication that we have, even swing by to say hello. He's in the city, but goes back to war. She is religious. It says right here that she is purifying herself, that she is going through the processes of obeying the law. In a time period in the judges where every man did what was right in his own eyes, one generation later, here is Bathsheba, and she is purifying herself. She is living supposedly a godly life. She's doing all of this openly. But I want you to hear this. Religious activities will not keep you from sin. There are people who say, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, but they have no power over fleshly indulgence. That's what Colossians tells us. No value. All of your rules, all of your visible religiosity, if it does not hit your heart, if your heart is not focused on the Lord, you will still run to those things that are wrong. Religious activities don't keep you from sin. And secondly, her activity signaled her availability. Why would I say this? 
Um, we don't have time this morning, but just on your own, I want you to write down Proverbs 6, 20 through 7, 27. 6, 20 through 7, 27. In there, it actually says Solomon is the one that is writing, and he says he, he sat down with his mom and dad, and his mom and dad said this, listen to your dad's command, but listen to the teachings of your mama. And then the mom begins to unpack for Solomon who to avoid. And he, she says, I want you to see, the price of a prostitute is only a bag of bread, but the price of sleeping with another man's wife will be the ruin of your character. You will always be that woman. That's what she says. She's writing from experience. She says, be careful about the woman who says, I've taken care of all my religious expectations. I've already paid all of my vows to the Lord. I, I've spiced my bed. I am pure. I am ready. My husband has gone away on a long journey. Does that sound familiar with any of the characteristics of this story? She says, and then suddenly the result of that union is a destruction of your life and your soul. She's helping him, says, listen to my story, Solomon. Don't do what I did. Don't allow that to happen to another woman in your area. Don't let this be your story. Dabbling with desire can be dangerous. There is a pattern that remains. New Testament picture here. James 1 highlights for us the fact that when we begin to think about sin, if we don't get that eradicated and lay it before the Lord, that it'll give birth to not only the sin but death that follows. But 1 John gives us a pattern that we see from the world. It says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride in one's possession is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world with its lust is passing away, but the one who does the will of God remains forever. Here's the pattern that we see here with David and Bathsheba. The lust of the eyes, David saw a beautiful woman. Bathsheba saw a powerful man. The lust of the flesh, David saw sexual comforts. Bathsheba saw the glitz of the palace. She's been living right next door to this mansion. Now she's inside that palace. The boastful pride of life. David is saying, I've still got it. I'm over 50 years old. I still can win the beautiful woman. And Bathsheba, boastful pride of life, those emotional cravings, she's saying, I can have him. Anyone I want, I can even have the king. In the world, you're going to be tempted over and over and over again with this simple pattern. Why has Satan not changed his lures? Because he hasn't needed to. We still fall with the same patterns. We see something. We hunger for something. We want to claim something. And we reach out for something that was never intended for us. And it will not satisfy it becomes a vapor in the fingers. It becomes a destructive smear on your testimony. It removes you from your ability to serve. There are consequences that impact your family and your character for a generation. What were the results of this moment? I, I want you to notice this in this verse here. It says in verse four, so he sees her from the rooftop. She's 
splashing around on the roof catches the king's attention. It says, David sent messengers to get her, and when she came to him, he slept with her. Now she had just been purifying herself from uncleanliness, and afterward, she returned home. I want you to notice that the affair only lasts for half a verse, one half of one half of a verse. That's how long it lasts. Consequences consistently outlast the experience. One half of one verse. He slept with her and she goes home. All the rest is consequences. All the rest is wondering how is he going to handle this. Chapters and chapters written about the destruction that would invade David's home, about the, the constant reminder that as she is called in Scripture, this is Uriah's wife, not yours. Even listed in the New Testament as her who was Uriah's wife. This flag is there. It lasted for one half of one verse. Let's just meditate on that for a moment, folks. It's over and consequences begin. It's that fast. How many of us have ever had an experience that is over in one half of one verse that we say, ah, that was worth it. Anything? There's nothing on earth that is worth that. We consistently miss that fact. In fact, their desires crushed the thought of consequences. Their desires crushed their conscience. If they had taken a pause one moment, if they had had one friend that was near them saying, why would you do this? They would not have gone forward. Uh, there is an actual uh, fact right now. Uh, engineers for car companies have been lying to you. All right? This is a true, this is a true statement. Uh, they found out that when they make your cars, uh, if they have a gas gauge that is accurate, you won't buy the car. You don't like accurate gas gauges. You want your car to stay on full longer, and you tell everybody, my car stays on full forever. That's what you do. I'm getting amazing gas mileage, right? And then about two ticks below full, it drops almost to empty within about eight miles, okay? Yeah, somebody siphoned my gas. But then it stays on E. E doesn't stand for empty anymore. Somebody told me it means extra 30 miles, right? At least that's what your high school kids think. Yeah, it's on E, but it's got 30 miles. You can fill it up, Dad. Extra 30 miles. Why is it that gas gauges are engineered that way? Because you won't buy the car if it gets off a full too quickly, and you get angry when it registers as empty before you have time, having put it off, to get to the gas station. Can I tell you what engineers have found out with cars? They found out something that we've been doing with our spiritual lives for a very long time. We project fullness way, way beyond its reality. And we do not believe that we're empty when we are. When all the scriptural indications of emptiness are in our life, we reject it and say, I got an extra 30 miles. David is on his rooftop at a time when kings go out to war, when he's supposed to be with his men. He has avoided his counselors whose speech are to him like God's own speech. They have treated him with respect. They have guided him, and he has separated himself. 
In fact, Proverbs 18.1 is a good one to write down for yourself, especially in the wake of coronavirus as we've separated ourselves as a rule. But it says in Proverbs 18.1, he who separates himself seeks his own desire and will wrangle against all sound wisdom. You separate yourself, there is something that you want to do and you're going to battle with anybody who doesn't want you to do it. Let's apply that in your own life for a moment. When have you begun to withdraw from community or withdraw from your family or withdraw from people at your business or withdraw in any way? You're irritated at them. You don't want to have to bend to fit in with them. You want to do your own thing. You want to do it at your own time. You want it to meet your own convenience. That's why David's on the roof. That lack of accountability comes with consequences, and that is there was nobody there to speak into his life as he was about to ruin his testimony. Murder, lying, and destruction of his family followed. That's the results of a moment. So hear me. What should I do? If you're this morning, right now, dabbling, if there is somebody who has caught your eye, and by that I mean you are married, but there is somebody else who you tend to drift towards, You look forward to their phone call. You look forward to that meeting. Men, one of the questions that uh, a couple of ministries put on their list when they're talking with their other leaders, can you remember the smell of her perfume when you say her name? Are you more encouraged about getting a laugh from her than you are about going home? Women, is there somebody who seems to project security, who seems to project stability, who seems to project more than what you have? Tired of living with the ape, the silverback, right? He's always banging his chest and picking hair out of his ears. That guy is looking great. Everyone is a silverback, okay? All the guys. There is no good guy. Outside of the grace of God, none of us can be lived with. It is a myth. If you are dabbling right now, you need to do something, and this is a dramatic thing, and and I'm not sure you have the courage to do it. If you've been withdrawing and separating, it's because you want to do your own thing. You're preparing to make that decision. The only thing we see in Scripture that will halt that process is if you confess your sins one to another. If you confess that to a brother or sister of Christ, get help and get right with the Lord. It's the only thing that can fix you. Until you expose that sin, the malignancy does not stop. I want you to hear me. If you want to save your marriage, your character, and your future you will confess to somebody, I'm dabbling with sin or I'm in trouble and get their help. Confess to the Lord, a brother, and your mate. Yes, there will be consequences, but you only confess if you love them and you want to get right. Secondly, you have to get captivated with Christ. Now, those aren't in reverse order. I just wanted to shock you with the idea that you're going to have to confess. But you cannot get right with Christ without confessing. You can't bury this. David tried to bury it. 
Psalm 51 is his, he says, my bones are melting away. I'm falling apart inside. The decisions that I had made before I confessed to the Lord were weighing on me and rotting my soul every single night. I know what I had done. I didn't think anybody else knew, but God knew, and he saw that it was evil. God's going to pursue you. If you are a believer, if you confess Christ, he is going to pursue you until you get this right. It will not stop. Fall on your face before the Lord and accept not only his grace, but his plan. He has a plan to set you right. He will help you make it right. He'll set you on your feet and help you erase all the vestiges of that sin if you will follow him. That's the promise of Scripture. 1 John 1, 9 says, if you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive the sin, but also cleanse you of all the little pieces of that trail that led up to the decision that was ruining your life. He's that good. Get captivated with Christ. Folks, you have to cultivate your relationship with your spouse. It's our third thing. There is a true story of a man. I've got the article right here. Kansas City, Kansas. 71-year-old man robbed a Kansas City bank so he could get away from his wife because she was depressing him. Court records indicate that Ripple wrote a robbery note in front of his wife and said he'd rather be in jail than at home, then went down to the bank, told them that he had a gun, took the money, and sat on the park bench out in front until the police came. The real lesson here, the article says, might not be the the issue that he was running away from, but the punishment meted out to him by the judge. Rather than allowing him to escape his dysfunctional home, the judge sentenced him to six months of home confinement. <laughs> now that's, uh, that's shocking and painful for him. I want you to highlight this. Um, some of you are sitting here thinking, I don't know how I'm going to make it. We've been going through this marriage series and nothing has changed. I'm still so overwhelmed. Surely there's somebody else who can meet my needs. Somebody who is better than this. One author says this, sometimes God puts us in circumstances that we cannot change to force an interchange in us, not to demand change of somebody else. In this situation with this man, it's not that the punishment fit the crime as much as the challenge fits our need to grow and mature. A mature man doesn't go rob a bank to get out of his problem. Final thing I have you understand, for those who have felt the sting or the consequences of adultery, and you're here right now, and by the way, I believe that every single person either has a name or a situation that's on their heart right now. You know it. It is so thick in our culture that either you are facing it today, you have dealt with it in your life, it's happened to your family, or it's happening to a friend. This is what we have to remember. If you've felt the sting or consequences of adultery, Matthew 1.6 gives the lineage of Jesus Christ. And in there, not only is the king that's listed as a great king, David, but Bathsheba, the one who was the wife of Uriah. 
God chose these two individuals to say, do you want to see what I do to those who come back around to me? I'll put them right in my lineage. I'm not, I'm not afraid to be known with you. I'm not afraid to associate with you. I love you so much, I'll put you in my family tree. And by the way, he's still doing that today. He wants you clean and upright and in his family. Confess, come to him and experience not only forgiveness, but a change in your life. That's the promise. Romans 8 says it this way, for those that are believers. It says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Amen? For that which the law could not do, since it was weakened by the flesh, God did. He condemned sin in the flesh, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering, in order that the law's requirements would be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Let go of all of the law. Bathsheba was following the law, but was filled with sin. The law won't set you free. Laws won't set you free. Jesus Christ will. And he wants to do that today. Amen? Let's just consider those thoughts as we consider this story. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us now to apply these things. Uh, this is not a light and encouraging Sunday morning, but it is, Father, a morning that is filled with the promise of, of hope. Not just that two people made a bad decision, but that you would do something so outrageous as to put them in the lineage of Christ. Father, we praise you for that. And we do ask that you would help us to investigate our own hearts. What is it that we are chasing after? What are the things that we are focused on? In what way are we, like David, separated, out on a roof, not thinking about consequences? In what way are we, like Bathsheba, looking for just a little something more. Father, I pray that you would set us free from thinking that there's anything here that can satisfy that is not you. Help us to focus on you. And I do pray, Father, that you would help us if we are running close to somebody who is on the roof or considering taking the plunge in a, a relationship that will destroy them. Help us to speak up, but with words of grace, not condemnation, but the promise that if we run to you, you will set us free. Father, help us when we hear from some of our friends that they've been dabbling. Help us to run to you, to fall to our knees, to promise grace. But I do pray, Father, that you would raise up a generation who not only have heard the stories of brokenness, but who have seen the stories of repaired lives. They're filling this room doesn't have to end with a bad decision. It ends with a glorious reunion with you and watching the story of how you fix a broken life. Father, we give this to you, and we ask for those that are wounded, they would feel your grace. For those who are walking well, that they would reach out to somebody who's hurting with the message of the gospel. Father, we put our entire case in your hands and ask you would satisfy us and make us ministers of grace. Help us to hear this story and live differently. In Christ's name, amen.